Good morning. It's, it's particularly good to see everyone. I, I love Sundays. I love that we're, we're gathered together at Anthem Church. Good things are happening. Today is particularly, especially good. There's a little bit of extra measure of goodness this morning. And here's just two reasons why. Number one, we're now entering month number 10 in the life of our church. So since we started services back in December, and this, folks, is a big deal because not many church plants make it to year two. Not all of them do. And so every month, we're, we're getting there. We're getting closer. God, we're beating the odds. And it just, just goes to show that God's presence is with us, that God's favor is upon us, that God's blessing is here among us. The fact that we got started, it validates that God has brought us together and that he's doing a, a big work, a great work here at Anthem Church. Um, along with that, we survived the summer. And that's a big deal. That's our first summer as a church. And the reason it's a big deal, because summertime, usually two things happen. People are gone, and the money be gone. And those are particularly bad when you're in your church. You need folks around, and you, and you need money to, to, for us to pay the bills and do all that we need to do. And we didn't only survive the summer months. Like, we held our own. Like, everything was tracking just the way, the way it was before. Depending on how you look at the numbers, you could actually say that we grew some over the summer. And so we give all credit, all praise to God. When most churches are declining in the summer, God, like, I'm with you. Good things are happening, and, and that just, to me, encourages me and excites me that God has gotten us this far, that we're more than surviving, we're, we're thriving, and now we're entering the fall, and the summer's over, and weather's going to get a little bit cooler, people are going to be gone a little bit less, and so I'm expecting bigger and greater things in the life of our church going forward. So I hope that you're praying about it, and that you're particularly excited about what's about to happen up in here at and through Anthem. This is a big deal. You guys get to be a part of a church plant. I wasn't going to say this. Because we're small and new, every single one of you, you get to put your thumbprint on a brand new church. Not many people can say that. Well, usually when we go to a church, it's been there 100 years, and they do their things their way, and you just got to conform to what they do. Folks, when you serve on the praise team or the tech team or the host team or when you serve with children, when you do help us out with Crate Myrtle, God is using you to put a thumbprint on this to create something that's never existed because Anthem Church has never existed until now. And so what a special privilege that is. So praise God and, and just lean into that. Lean into that opportunity and privilege. Uh, number reason, reason number two why today is so special and cool and exciting is because we are starting a brand new sermon series and the sermon series is entitled Suddenly. What makes life so exciting and fun, it's the same thing that often makes it so upsetting and scary. Suddenly moments. Suddenly moments. Suddenly, you got the promotion and you got a pay raise. Exciting. Suddenly, you lost your job. Scary. Suddenly, the doctor's office calls and all the tests are negative. Exciting. Suddenly, the Andrew Popo calls and they've arrested your teen. Devastating. Okay? Suddenly, her water breaks. Both, right? <laughs> like both. What, it's a concoction of emotions. It's fun, scary, exciting, devastating. Like, oh my gosh, what's about to happen? Um, I, I love soccer, personally. I enjoy playing soccer. I love watching soccer. And the reason why is because it is thrilling. And non-soccer people, whoever you may be, non-soccer people, you don't understand this. That, because what you're thinking is, well, there's not enough action. There's not enough scoring in soccer, so it's not fun. And I'm like, that's the reason why it's so exciting and so thrilling. Because you never know what's going to happen. You, it's the anticipation of it. You're watching the game. It's kind of cool. It's kind of settled. Nothing's really happening. And then, bam, all of a sudden, there's a score. And it's like if you blinked, you missed it. In soccer, what, the, what soccer is, soccer is like the sport of suddenly. That all of a sudden, we, you don't even know it, bam, someone scores quickly, unexpectedly, and suddenly. That's what makes it so thrilling and exciting. Now, clearly, 
What is more exciting than soccer is this. It's knowing that God is the God of suddenly. That God is the God of suddenly. That all in a moment, God can show up into our life and storm in out of nowhere seemingly and do amazing, amazing things in all of our lives. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 20 says that God is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. And it's not just that God has the capacity and the capability of doing beyond our wildest imaginations. It's that he can do it instantly. He can do it in a moment. He can do it suddenly, quickly, unexpectedly. That, that's the God who we, who we worship. It's that very often he just rushes in, guns blazing, like in a blaze of glory. He comes in, storms into our lives without warning to rescue us, to help us, to bless us. You know, there's, there's really only two kinds of people in this room this morning. There are those of us who just recently went through a difficult or challenging season in life. And there are those of us who are about to. And everyone falls into one of those two two buckets there. And Jesus teaches us in Matthew 7 that storms come, the storms of life come, and it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. When these storms of life come to us. So it's not if, it's when. Sooner or later, every one of us will come face to face with a dilemma that threatens to crush us. So whether it's a financial issue in our life. Those are some suddenly moments right there, right? What about a health issue? You went to the doctor and got a report or your parents went to the doctor and got a report. It's a suddenly moment. Uh, it, it may be a relationship that, that's gone awry. There, there may be the death of a loved one. Like there, there are storms that we face and they come at us from every angle and they attack every part of our lives. But here's the thing. Here's like the really, really good news that in a moment, in the midst of a storm, God can come in suddenly and he is stronger and mightier than anything that this world can throw our way. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? That in the midst of chaos, in the midst of trials and tribulations and all of that, that there is this wonderful, all-powerful God that can blaze into your life and rescue you and deliver you and help you. God, folks, is the God of suddenly. And that's what we're talking about in this series that, that we're starting today and we're covering for the next four weeks after today. So if you have your Bible with you, please turn with me to the book of Acts. If you don't have a Bible, uh, the verses will be on the screen. If you don't own a Bible, please grab one of these if it's near you. That's a free gift to you. We want everyone to have a copy of God's Word. And so that's just a free gift. We're looking at the book of Acts, so New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then Acts, and we're specifically in Acts chapter 12. And what we're going to see in Acts chapter 12 is an extremely cool story that proves that God is the God of suddenly. And what we're going to see in Acts chapter 12 is that God can do far more abundantly beyond all that we can ask and even think, and he can do it like that, suddenly. We're looking at Acts 12 so that we may all have the confidence, that we may all have the confidence knowing that God can take care of things at a moment's notice, that he is the God of suddenly. So let's just go ahead and get into Acts chapter 12. Let's read the first two verses. Now, about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. As we come to Acts chapter 12, persecution of the church, particularly in the city of Jerusalem, is very much on the rise Persecution has been a reality in the, 
in the church since the days that Jesus walked the streets of Jerusalem, but it's increasing, it's intensifying, and part of the reason is because of the reign of King Herod Agrippa I. And there are several Herods in the Bible. This one in particular was been appointed by Rome, by both Emperor um, Claudius and Emperor Caligula before him. And he's appointed to rule over Judea and Samaria in 41 AD. And he rules for three years, 41 to 44 AD. And that's only three years. But in three years, this Herod vastly furthered the cause against Jesus. Herod grew up, he was raised in Rome. He was educated in Rome, and Rome is no friend to Christianity. Rome is who killed Jesus. Rome specifically is who crucified Jesus. Well, Herod is also the politician. He knows how to rub shoulders with people, and so when he's given reign over Judea and Samaria and Jerusalem and that whole thing, he knows he needs to win the favor of the locals, of the Jewish people, in particular who? The, the leaders, the Pharisees. So he starts to work, go out of his way to win the favor of the Pharisees. Well, folks, the Pharisees are no friends to Christianity either because they're the ones who beg Rome to kill Jesus. And in Herod, what you have is an awful combination. He represents the alliance between Rome and the Pharisees, everything that is anti-Jesus, anti-Christian. This is bad, bad news for the church in Jerusalem. And to ingratiate himself to the Jews, Herod begins this very militant campaign to eradicate the church, to eliminate it, to exterminate it from the face of the planet. And so in verse 1, it says that Herod laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And mistreat is actually kind of an unfortunate word there because the Greek that this was originally written in means something a little bit different than just simply mistreating someone. It literally means to do evil too. So Herod, what he's doing, he's grabbing people specifically in order to do evil to them. His intention is to kill and to destroy. His goal is violence, ruthless violence. Everything in the heart of Herod is to eradicate, kill, destroy all followers of Jesus. That's evil, right? And to what degree is this evil? It tells us in verse 2 that he takes James, who's one of the apostles, and he takes the sword to James, a.k.a. he beheads him. Takes his head off. Some things don't change, and, and we prayed about this just a little while ago. There are people in the world today whose entire reason for living in their minds is to eradicate the church to kill Christians. Like some things just don't, don't change. There are groups out there, bloodthirsty, militant groups that are on march right now in Iraq and Syria. No, we know them as ISIS. They're all over the news now. And they are literally, literally hunting Christians down and beheading them, including children. That's happening right now. Some things, folks, just don't change. And, and this is part of the spiritual war that we find ourselves in. 1 John chapter 3, verse 13 says, Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. There are two kinds of people in this world. Those who belong to the church and those who belong to the world. There are those who are followers of Christ they're children of God. They're, they're Christian. They are of the light is how the Bible would present it. And then there's the world. And the Bible says of the world means to be of the darkness. And as early as Genesis chapter 3, God forewarned us that there would always be enmity or hostility between those who belong to the church and those who belong to the world. That there would be this constant wrestling and violence between the two, between the two groups. And so we see this fleshing itself out today. And so the darkness hates the light. How much so? The darkness killed the light. Jesus is the light of the world. And they did 
that, they killed Jesus for no reason. He never did anything to harm anyone. If anything, he healed the sick. He fed the hungry. He looked after the poor. He taught God's love and truth to them. What did he, Jesus ever do? He was innocent, but yet they killed him. They hated him, and they slayed him. They crucified the Son of God. Well, if that's what Jesus got, then we should not expect much different ourselves. If they killed Jesus, then we should expect that there would be an enmity or hostility against us. And it's no different today as it was back in the first century. All right, I digress back. Let's go back into our story. Let's look at verses 3 and 4. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now, it was during the days of unleavened bread when he had seized him. He put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So Herod executes, beheads James. The crowds go wild. They're cheering for more. And all like the public fanfare just encourages Herod to kick it up a notch, to take it to the next level. Well, that went well. More can, be, can only be good. And so he goes after Peter. And now the strategy is clear. The strategy of the enemy is clear. Go after the leadership. James is an apostle. Killed him. Let's go after another leader. Let's go after Peter. Goes after him. Has him arrested. He lays hands on him to do evil to him. Puts him in prison. And here's the one little thing that Herod didn't think about in the moment. It is the days of unleavened bread. That is an old, there's a reference to the Old Testament week-long celebration that coincides, goes together with the Passover. And so both together, week-long celebration, both together commemorate, they celebrate what God did so long before when he delivered God's people, when he took them out of slavery and bondage in Egypt, when he used Moses, the parting of the Red Sea, all of that. So it commemorates, and it is that week that Herod happens to arrest Peter. And so Herod, being the politician that he is, you know what, it'd be kind of in bad taste to kill someone during Holy Week. So let's hold off for a while. I want some political capital out of this. I don't want to offend anyone. So I'm going to wait till after Passover. And then off with his head. Very thoughtful of, of Herod. In the meantime, Herod puts Peter in prison. He sets four squads of soldiers over Peter, a squad is four soldiers. That means that 16 highly trained Roman soldiers are dispatched exclusively to watch over Peter to make sure that he doesn't get away, that he doesn't escape, that there's no big old breakout or anything like that. Four squads. So in essence, Peter's in a maximum security prison under heavy guard, and it is the eve. Right? He's only a few days now from being beheaded. He ain't going nowhere, Jack. Jack Bauer wouldn't be able to break him out at this point. I mean, his days are numbered. The writing is on the wall, and that's the scene. James has just been beheaded. It's Passover week. Well, we can't help but think of Jesus, right? Like, Man, they crucified Jesus during Passover week, so a few years before this. So, I mean, that doesn't bear well. So everything, all the facts, the data is lining up that something bad is about to happen to Peter. He's under guard. He's imprisoned. Things are not well. Like, this is as ominous and as dire as it possibly can get for anyone. And in a few days, his head will be violently severed from the rest of his body. And what does the church do? Look at verse 5. So Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. The church prayed. There was nothing else that Peter's Christian family could do for him. They couldn't break him out of prison, so they broke out into prayer. Peter was grabbed physically 
was grabbed physically by Herod, so the church grabbed him spiritually. The guards kept him in prison. The church kept him in prayer. And now look at what happened after that. Look at verse 6 and 7. On the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison and behold, an angel of the Lord, wait for it, suddenly appeared and a light shone in the cell. It is the eve, the eve of his beheading. He is in prison under four squads. He is in chains between the soldiers. They've encircled him roundabout. And suddenly, out of nowhere, unexpectedly, quickly, God acts. And he sends an angel to rescue him out of the clutches of of certain death. Folks, God is the God of suddenly. And keep reading, because the story to me, I love this story. Keep reading. Look at verse 7 where we left off. And the angel struck Peter's side and woke him up. This is really, really funny. The word struck, and this is just a little sidebar because I think it's funny. The word struck means actually a heavy blow. So it wasn't a tap. It wasn't a nudge. Hey, wake up. Like it, and he's, you, know, you assume he's sleeping on the floor. So the angel appears, and we know it's the side. So I'm like, this angel frogged him in the ribs. Hey, Jack, wake up. Wake up, Peter. So he gives him this shot. He wakes up, of course. He says, get up quickly. And then it says, and the chains fell off. The chains just fell off. Like supernaturally, the lock was picked. Like in a display of God's glory and power, the bonds are loosed. Just like that. Just like that. See, this is what happens when God acts suddenly. Nothing can stop him. Nothing can prevent him from doing what he wants to do. Nothing, folks, can keep him from rescuing you. Nothing can prevent God from delivering you, helping you, blessing you. Verse 8, And the angel said to him, Gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and what? Follow me. And it's clear that God is doing all the work. All Peter has to do is put on his clothes and do what? Follow. Verse 9 tells us that Peter did just that. He went out, continued to follow, and he did not know what was being done by the, that the, what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought that it was a vision. He thought he was seeing a vision. He's sleep, sleeping in prison between guards in chains. It's the eve of his beheading. All of a sudden, this angel appears, bright light happens, chains are falling off. He's following this angel out, and he's thinking, this is way, way too good to be true. And so it must be some kind of dream, some kind of vision about something. And then in in the next verse, in verse 10, it says, When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. So they're walking out of this prison. They're walking past armed guards, heavily like trained Roman soldiers walking right past them unimpeded. And it doesn't tell us exactly how this happened. So it may be that, the, that God put these soldiers in a deep sleep, and so they just walked out like unimpeded. We've seen God do that in certain places in Scripture. Um, it might be that maybe God made the angel and Peter invisible to the soldiers. That would be kind of cool. So they just kind of walked out and, you know, probably like did all kinds of stuff to them, give them wedges on the way, who did that, and they walked out and, and no big deal. Or it might have been like, a, like a, just a divine Jedi mind trick. These are not the droids that you're looking for, kind of a thing. We're not told exactly what, what happens here, but we know this. They walk out unimpeded 
They walk out unimpeded. And as they're walking out, y'all, gates, iron gates, are just swinging open. This is what happens when the God of suddenly shows up. Nothing can stop him, not guards, not chains, not iron gates, nothing. He is powerful enough to do all of these things. He's clearly at work here in the life of Peter, rescuing him. And what does Peter do in verse 11? Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. He breaks out in praise. He gives all glory to God, all credit to God. He's worshiping God because he knows he was in a situation that he himself and no person on the planet, no one else could rescue him out of. It required the God of suddenly to show up suddenly and do what only the God of suddenly can do. And that is do far more abundantly beyond anything that we can ever ask or think. And that is the story here. Is this not a cool story? This is a good story. Like there, and, and folks, I could spend hours camped out. I could, we could go through, oh, we need to learn so many lessons from here. I just want to focus on three lessons from this story real quick. Number one, the one that I've been repeating over and over. God is the God of suddenly. The story teaches us clearly this God often works suddenly, unexpectedly, out of nowhere. Out of nowhere. Often he does this. So if you are a follower of Jesus, it does not matter what circumstances you're in, what trials you're facing, what difficulties you're having to endure. Trust that there is this loving God that at any moment can storm into your life and fix it all. Believe in that God that he is powerful enough, loving enough, capable enough to fix the problems in your life. If you find yourself today with a major health issue, you know that God is the great physician? God you know, we go to doctors and we take medicine and that's all well and good. That's provided by God. But God doesn't even need that. Like if you're sick, if you were to have cancer or something, God right now where you're sitting, he can heal it and take it completely away. I have actually seen that happen in the lives of people. God can do that. If, if you find yourself in the midst of financial disaster, and you don't know what's going to happen with the house, and you don't know what's going to happen with the bank account, you don't know how these things are going to get paid for, trust in this. God is not only the creator of everything, he owns it all. He owns all the cattle on all the hills. All wealth and riches belong to God. And, and as his follower, surely he can bestow upon you what you need. So trust in him. And if you've gone through a, a relationship issue and you are just emotionally devastated and your heart is broken, just know that God is love and that his grace is beyond sufficient in that moment to heal your brokenness, to heal your heart. Do you believe in that God? Do you believe in the, in the God of Sunlake? And no matter what you're going through, he can do far more abundantly than you could ever ask beyond your wildest imaginations and then he can do it in an instant. You know, Psalm 46, 1 says, God is our refuge and strength. We just sang that just a little while ago. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. You know, you know why we can trust in the God of suddenly? It's because he's also the God of always. He is always near. He's always aware of what we're going through. He's always mindful of where we are with everything. And because he's always close and he always knows, he's always able to step in and intervene on behalf of those that he loves. That's one lesson. A second lesson I think we can learn from this, from this story is that often God waits until the midnight hour to act suddenly. And this 
often causes us a bit of consternation and all kinds of heartburn here. But this is so good. Like, this is for our good, in our best interest. Uh, one of the reasons why God often waits till late in the game to do what only he can do is to grow our faith, to stretch our faith. Usually, this is the way it goes. I enter into a season where I'm being tried, where I'm, it's, it's a trial. I'm being tested. Things are tough. It's difficult, whatever the case may be. And my instinct, my natural reaction is to apply my muscles into it, right? For me to exercise my, myself into the situation. So I start putting forth all my creativity, my intelligence, supposedly, all my energy, my effort, all my ingenuity, all my tactics. I start applying everything at my disposal to get me out of the situation. And God sits back and he's like, are you done yet? So he's trying to get us to where we fully exhaust ourselves and all that we think that we have in that situation in order to, to do what? To get us to realize that we can't place our faith on ourselves, but we can only place it in him. We, it, it's getting to that point where we are feeling desperate. It's a good thing. It's awful at the moment, at the time we're going through it, but it's a, such a good thing. Getting to the place where we are desperate, and as the midnight hour approaches, as that doctor test approaches, right, as, as uh, that bill approaches, whatever it is that's happening, as it approaches, we get more and more desperate, and all we can do is cry out to God. That's all we can do that's when we realize that our only hope is what God can do for us. And that, folks, is what faith looks like. It is complete desperation. God, you are the only one that can deliver me out of this prison that I am in. So that's the second lesson we can learn. The third lesson has to do with the importance of prayer. The importance of prayer. Sometimes God acts suddenly only after we have spent time praying. Look back to verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church of God. The church prayed and God acted. And I do want us to be a little bit careful here because just because we pray for something does not mean that God is going to do it. Prayer does not force God's hand. Does not put him in it. Well, they prayed. I guess I got to do it. That it doesn't work that way. I am extremely confident that this church prayed for James when he was apprehended. But God chose not to deliver James out of it for whatever reasons that we do not yet understand. Okay, so just because we pray for it doesn't mean that it, it will happen. So that's why we should always, always pray, but not my will, Lord, your will be done. So praying with humility, we don't always know what's best. We don't always know what's right. We, never, we hardly ever know what God is up to. So we pray with humility, yet the Bible says to pray. To bring all our petitions before the Lord, always, all the time. And here's what should just encourage us or, or discourage us depending on where you are with this the bible actually says you have not because you ask not that there are tremendous amounts of rescuings and blessings that god would give if we simply prayed for it and so evaluate your life e evaluate your prayer life are you bringing everything? Are you bringing all your challenges and your trials, your troubles and your problems before the Lord and asking for him to deliver you out of it? Asking for his help. Asking for his will to be done in, in your life. Now, we got to pray. And I, I want to, in verse 5, it actually tells us what this prayer should look like. There are three things that it tells us that the prayer should look like. Number one, it should be persistent should be persistent prayer. In verse 5, it says, Prayer for him was being made. And make note of the verb tense. It doesn't say that prayer was made, that it was being made. So it's continuous, ongoing, perpetual prayer. It was praying without ceasing, constantly. You follow that? The, the, the impression that you get here is that the church is, is praying without stop. They're laboring. 
They're applying themselves. This isn't a one-time prayer. We got a prayer request. All right, bam, done, moved on. Like There was a constant wrestling with God over this matter, persisting, persisting in it. And so I would say that if you want God to work in your life suddenly, if it is in accordance with his will, pray with persistence. It's more than a day. It might be a month. It might be a year. It might be 10 years. It might be an entire lifetime of praying over something, and then God does it. So persistent. The second thing that verse 5 tells us about this kind of prayer is that it should be fervent. I like that word. It's like word of the day. Fervent. Fervent means earnest, heartfelt, impassioned, sincere prayer. It's ardent, vehement prayer it's it's prayer that involves our emotions so we're not talking about robotic mechanical cold praying over something we're talking about the we're we're longing for this our our soul is craving this greatly the trick with that is we can't manufacture that right i can't just make myself feel impassioned over something well how in the world should i get myself to where i feel impassioned about God helping me. It's only by realizing that he's the only one that can helping me. So it's gospeling yourself. It's reminding yourself of the truth, which is we are in a prison, often in a prison, financial, health, whatever the case may be, relationships, whatever it may be, we're in a prison in that we can't get ourselves out of it. So we pray fervently, emotionally, knowing that God is the only one that can get us out of it. So, you desire for God to act suddenly in your life? Pray persistently, pray fervently. And number three, pray corporately. Pray corporately. Verse five, they prayed for him, right? Prayer for him was being made fervently by who? The church. It was being done by the church. So it's believers gathered together, Praying together for one another, laboring together in this impassioned, fervent prayer. It's a collaborative effort. It's a joint venture where the church is gathered to, to pray for whatever it is that they're going to pray for. In this case, to deliver Peter. Brothers and sisters in Christ gathered for this. Now, today, I don't think any of us find ourselves in a Jerusalem prison on the eve of our beheading. That being said, the reality is that in this world, there are things and people, etc., that only desire is to lay hands on us for the purpose of evil, for the purpose of doing harm. There is a war that we're in the thralls of. And these attacks come even from within us. So we, we have sinful desires. And, and our, our, our flesh craves certain things. And, and that our sinful desires that it only intention is to put us in a prison of like lust and sexual morality and anger and jealousy. To put us in a prison of selfishness. And, and the world comes at us. The world comes at us with all its, its religions and all its philosophies and all its thinking. And, and if we were to go that right, we would let it, let it imprison us into like a prison of materialism and self-reliance and legalism. And then there's the actual devil and all his cronies, and they want nothing more than to sink their hooks into us and to carry us off into destruction along with them. You add to that the reality that we live in a fallen world where spouses do cheat on us, right? And they virtually behead the joy off of us. When we live in a world where we do lose our job and, and our homes and our families are threatened, that we live, we live in a world where any moment we could go to the doctor and get that report and there's a disease and that disease is going to eat us alive. All of that put together, it's no wonder so many of us so often find ourselves in a prison under heavy guard. And there is nothing that we can do about it. You know, Peter desperately required, needed 
the prayers of his church to get him out of what he could not get himself out of. So we need prayer, all of us. Here's the difference between us and Peter, however. Peter, Peter's issue was very public, right? Like everyone knew what he was going through, how desperate it was. Our problem is that we keep all our issues to ourselves. We keep it si- secret. We keep it quiet. We keep it private. And our pride keeps it private in us in such a way that we don't ask for prayers. Or we may at best sometimes throw in, I got an unspoken kind of a thing. An unspoken prayer request. So what we need to do is that we need to trade pride and privacy for humility and honesty. We need to be open and transparent and actually share what it is that is threatening us. Share with our church Folks, not just our BFF. Did I just really say that? Not just with our small group. Not just with our A-team. Though clearly, please. But with our church. With the gathered church sharing our prayer requests. There's stuff that threatens us. That has got some of us in prison. That is looking to do harm to us. We cannot get ourselves out. And our only hope is for brothers and sisters in Christ to come together and pray fervently and persistently that the God of suddenly may show up suddenly in our lives and do what only he can do. So, I am so convinced and convicted of this that starting on Thursday, September 18th, that evening, uh, we're going to start, that'll be our first of what's going to be our monthly prayer service. And this is something that actually has been on my heart going back to February. And it got really affirmed in me when I was on that Haiti mission trip back in June. Uh, there's some stuff in my life that has refueled and rekindled this need and, and knowledge that I need. God's people praying for me. So it's been rekindled. And this text of the Bible clearly has cemented it for me. So we are setting apart a small sliver of the month. And, fo- and quite honestly, it's not even enough, but it's something, right? So it's nothing really that we're, we're going to be doing, but it's something. We're going to set apart, we're going to sanctify this one Thursday evening out of the month. Maybe start at 6.45, 7. I don't even know the details yet. All right, we'll get that out to you. Um, and we're just going to set it apart, and we're going to just gather here. And we're just going to share prayer requests. And it may be that you email it in. It may be that you write it down. You, you know, some people don't like to share out loud. That's fine. And we're just going to pray for one another. And we're going to labor side by side for one another. And we're going to pray fervently together with one another and for one another. And, and i got to confess that part of me has hesitated for months to add this to our church calendar because I recognize how busy we all are. I recognize how utterly crazy our schedules are and so i've hesitated to add it to the calendar and and our very own john adams just a few days ago i was talking to him about this and he said it perfectly and he said rick we should not have to apologize for asking people to prioritize what really matters i'm like amen to that so the evening of thursday september 18th not this week but the next we're going to gather here if it's just me, it's just me. But I, I hope it's a room full of people willing to press in and to share and to, to pray for one another. And I'm certain that as we do this month after month, we're going to be amazed by this one thing. The God of suddenly is suddenly going to start doing some amazing things in the life of this church, in the lives of the people in this church. So let's get together. Fervent prayer. Persistent prayer, corporate prayer, together. Let's do that. Let's do that. It's right and good. It's in our best interest. It glorifies God too. Praise Him. It's in our best interest. So that's what we're going to do. To close, uh, Acts chapter 12 does actually give us a very vivid picture of the life that we're born into. We are all born into a prison. We're born into 
a sinful prison. It's a prison of sin. All of us are born sinners. That's just what we, how we come into this world. We have a sinful disposition against God, and we are sinful in, in every way. We can't help but do it. And, and we know that that's a dilemma. That's a prison because then sin is exercising this power over us, and then there's eternal consequences to sin, for the wages of sin is death, as it tells us in Scripture. And we're born in this thing that we can't escape. Like every day, condemnation like stands guard over us and, and our guilt and our shame, that, that's our like chains and that's our iron gates. And we're, we're locked in this prison of like lust and sexual immorality and pride and jealousy and coveting, lying and cheating and gambling and addictions and all of this and we can't break out. We can't break out. And so, like Peter, we need God to send help, right? God sent an angel to lead him, to rescue him out of a physical prison. Well, likewise, God sent someone to lead us out of our spiritual prison. Except that this one wasn't an angel. This one is far greater and superior than all the angels. He came down himself. It's God. It's the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And he, he comes down out of heaven and he comes to this earth and he goes to a cross and there your sin and my sin are laid upon his shoulders. And he shed his blood and he died. And in that moment, like all the, the, the bonds, the chains are broken. They're unfastened. Gates swing open. And, and all he says is, follow me out. And we don't even have to put on our escape clothes, Jesus does it for us because it says that God takes our grave clothes, our sin, he takes it off of us, and he gives us the righteousness of Christ. Isn't that good? And so that now, whoever so believes in Jesus is forgiven and they're freed. They're completely freed. That Jesus died on this cross, he went into a grave, he came up out of the grave, and when he came out of it, he had secured these keys that keep us under lock, And he took those keys and he unlocked it so that we may be free. And so whosoever believes in the name of Jesus gives their life over to him and follows, they will be free. That's the gospel of grace. So I've been saying this all morning. Only two kinds of people, right? Or here's another one. Only two kinds of people. People who are imprisoned currently spiritually and those who have been freed. Which one are you. You may realize right now that you are still in that prison that you were born into. Sin is exercising power over you. You're caught up in it and you can't get it out. You've never accepted the Christ and his grace. You may realize that that is you right now. God may be revealing that to your heart right now. Well, if that's true, right now can be your suddenly moment where suddenly light shone. Where God sent his help into your heart to lead you out of the prison that you're in. That's the most important suddenly moment that there is. And all you have to do is just confess to the Lord that you're a sinner. It's okay. He knows. He loves you anyway. Jesus proves that. He knows. Confess it. Repent from your sin. Give your life over to Jesus. Follow him. Maybe that's how you need to respond this morning. Maybe you're someone, you're going through a trial, a difficulty, a hard season in your life. Believe in the God of suddenly. That he can rescue you out of all of your problems at any moment. So pray that he would give you the faith, the faith to live in confidence and in hope, knowing that he can do immeasurably more than you can ever imagine. Ask for God to give you that faith. And here's the cool thing about this kind of faith that God gives us, that even if, in accordance to his will, he chooses not to deliver us out of us, it is okay. Because it is through that faith that we also receive the grace of God that is sufficient to carry us through all of our trials. It's win-win, no matter what happens. And the last thing I would ask is this, that we would, as a church, as brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would dedicate a simple sliver of our month 
that we would prioritize some time where we would share some prayer requests, that we would share our lives and what our struggles are, and that we would come together and that we would pray corporately, fervently, persistently for one another so that we may see that God is, in fact, our strength and our refuge always. Always. And if we do that, folks, we will see amazing, amazing things, miraculous things in our lives. Okay, let's pray. Thank you, Lord Father, so much for this morning. I thank you and I praise you for your word and for the truth in it, for its comfort. Praise you. We thank you, Lord, that you are always near, that you are our strength and our refuge, and that you invite us, Lord, to know your strength and your grace. Praise you, Lord, that you are able to do more than we could ever ask. That you love us, Lord. And I I pray for everyone in this room. I ask, Lord, that if there's anyone in here who has never had that first, most important, suddenly moment where they've received the gospel, that they would do so right now, Lord. Or release them from their spiritual prison and, and the, the sin, the condemnation, Lord, by your grace, through your blood. Set them free. Lord, for all who are in the room who are experiencing challenges in their life, Lord, and I know most of us are, Lord, convince us, convict our hearts that you can fix it, that you can help, Lord. Give us the faith to have that confidence in you. And I pray that you would make us a praying church. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We ask that you would have your way with us in every way. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Let's stand and sing to the Lord.